Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Welcome back to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. And it was, I think, a few weeks ago now that a colleague of mine sent along an editorial from an academic journal called Nature Human Behavior, outlining a new set of ethics guidance for the scholarly work that the journal plan to publish moving forward. And before I editorialize on their editorial, I want to just take some time to read what those guidance are. So it says here right at the top, although academic freedom is fundamental, it is not unbounded. You always like when the but comes after the statement of principles. The same ethical considerations should underlie science about humans as apply to research with human participants. And that these ethical considerations relating to science about humans rather than science with human participants do not generally consider the potential benefits and harms of of research about humans who do not participate directly in the research. Such research is typically exempt from ethics review. Yet, people can be harmed indirectly. For example, research may inadvertently stigmatize individuals or human groups. It may be discriminatory, racist, sexist, ableist, or homophobic. It may provide justification for undermining the human rights of specific groups simply because of their social characteristics. And then it goes on to say, in this guidance, we urge authors to be respectful of the dignity and rights of the human groups they study. We encourage researchers to consider the potential implications of research on human groups defined on the basis of social characteristics, to be reflective of their authorial perspective, if not part of the group under study, and to contextualize their findings to minimize as much as possible potential misuse or risks of harm to the study groups in the public sphere. We also highlight the importance of respectful, non-stigmatizing language to avoid perpetuating stereotypes and causing harm to individuals and groups. So those are some emblematic paragraphs from the longer guidance, which we'll dive into during this conversation. But the guidance kind of piqued my interest because some of the rationales justifying it are becoming more frequent uh, in the work that I do here at FIRE, the work that we do on college campuses and off college campuses. The idea that free inquiry, academic freedom, the scientific process itself need more guardrails to protect vulnerable communities from potential harms, with harm usually going undefined. I recall actually in 2014 an article in the Harvard Crimson advocating for the principle of academic justice instead of academic freedom. Uh, The author said that when an academic community observes research promoting or justifying oppression, it should ensure that this research does not continue. That's more or less in no uncertain terms, kind of what nature human behavior is arguing. They don't say that the research shouldn't continue. They more or less just suggest that it won't get published. So fire recently published an essay by writer and author Jonathan Rausch on the Nature Human Behavior Guidance. 
uh, called Nature, Human Misbehavior, Politicized Science is Neither Science Nor Progress. And Jonathan is actually here with us today to discuss not only the guidance, but what its motivation pretends for science and free inquiry more broadly. Jonathan, as some of you might recall, is a past guest on this show. He is, in fact, the first ever guest on the show way back in April of 2016 is the author of perhaps in the opinion of many people here at fire the single best modern defense of free expression uh, ever written kindly inquisitors i believe jonathan if i have this correct it came out in 1993 and still holds up with a republished edition i believe in 2013 or 14 uh, it was kindly inquisitors the new attacks on free thought and more recently in a kind of expansion on some of the arguments in kindly inquisitors called the constitution of knowledge jonathan welcome on the show Thanks, Nico. I'm happy to be here. But he's not the only guest on today's show. We actually have a scientist with us. Uh, joining us from, I believe, California, if I'm not mistaken, is professor of chemistry at the University of Southern California, Anna Krylov. Uh, I'm a Notre Dame fan myself, so I won't hold your California uh, USC affiliation against you. Um, but she is the author of a piece that I think has a lot to say about the nature of human behavior guidance. Uh, the piece was published in the Journal of Physical Chemistry and is called The Peril of Politicizing Science. And uh, Professor Krylov, she joins us in her individual personal capacity today. She has some other affiliations. She does not speak on behalf of any institution that she is affiliated with. But Anna, it's great to have you on the show for the first time. Thank you, Nika. I'm very pleased to be on the show. Jonathan, because you published the response to the nature of human behavior piece, I want to begin with you right at the outset uh, in your piece. You suggest that what nature human behavior is doing here is appointing themselves social justice gatekeepers for science. What do you mean by that? Well, of course, science needs journals. It needs editors. Um, it does not want to be socially irresponsible. So it needs checks and balances. All of those things are true, but we have a tradition more than a century now in scholarly editing and practice that you don't use politics as the gatekeeping tool. You look at the theoretical importance of the work and its freshness and its methodology um, when you decide whether and what to publish. Um, and you also, to some extent, you do look at what social harm it might cause, but individuals do that. That's done in the community of working scientists. They debate that with each other in the process of doing the research and vetting the research. And then after it's published, they continue to debate, is this socially good or bad or harmful? What's happening with nature, human behavior is different. They are explicitly saying, from now on, we will be the judges of whether scientific work is harmful. Now, they don't say exactly what harmful means because they don't know. It's a very broad term. It could mean anything. But they give us some strong hints. They say, for instance, if it undermines the dignity or rights of specific groups, if it assumes that a human group is superior or inferior to another simply because of social characteristics, if it includes hate speech or denigrating images, they apparently will decide what is hateful and what is denigrating. 
or if it promotes privileged exclusionary perspectives. Privileged exclusionary perspectives. So they're going to decide whether a piece submitted by a scientist like Anna, Anna is privileged and exclusionary. They're not going to define these things. So what you're going to be left with here is a very different kind of science editing. One that says, we're going to make some prod political determinations. If we don't like what we see, we will reject your article. We will require revisions. Or they say they may even retract and repudiate it after it's been published. That's very dangerous territory. Well, what what makes it political per se? Because I imagine we're going to have listeners here who think, okay, yeah, we don't want research that's going to discriminate against some of the populations that it studies. I mean, is that a political idea? Or does it sit, fit into a political framework that we might be missing here? Well, there are two levels to respond to that. One is it doesn't have to be partisan political to be political in the sense that terms like harm, dignity, rights, privilege, exclusionary cannot be discussed without being debated in a broader political context. Conservatives, liberals, libertarians will all have very different ideas of what those things mean. So the editors will have to pick their idea of what those things mean, and their choice will be far more contentious than traditional editorial criteria for the sciences, the kinds of things Anna can tell us about, you know, methodology, replicability, and so forth. But the second thing that's the point in principle that you can't, you can't keep politics out of this kind of vague judgment. In practice, these editors make it very clear that they are coming from what some people call the woke left, that it's a very group-oriented perspective. It's about social justice. It's about uh, preventing privilege. Um, racist, sexist, ableist, homophobic are the categories that they name. Now, one can agree or disagree with those particular categories and the vocabulary that they're using, but this is all the language, the vocabulary, the viewpoint of the identity politics left. Um, and agree or disagree, I don't think that's the perspective from which a scientific journal should be edited. Yeah, you write in your piece, Jonathan, that some of your own writing could be suspect, for instance, on the value to children of two-parent families and the danger of radical gender ideology. Uh, you know, I just wonder, looking at nature, human behavior, whether you're right that that would be looked at suspect and perhaps not, even if even if the research is sound, be liable for inclusion. For example, you know, you might not be a part of the group under study, right? It says that that's a consideration for publication here, um, and the outcome might be seen as harmful to single single parent households um, and might have something to say that makes them feel, quote, stigmatized, um, which is another word that they use here. So I, I want to put some meat on the bones with some potential examples. And it seems like that is one, right? If you're, if you're just reading the plain language of, of their guidance. Sure. Almost anything that makes distinctions between groups could be suspect. Uh, Bo Weingard, who wrote a really superb analysis, detailed analysis of this editorial standpoint in Quillette, points out that an article, for example, that says 
homosexual men have more sexual partners could be viewed as stigmatizing, even if publishing it could be essential to responding to the public health needs of, of gay men. It's impossible even in principle, of course, for the editors of a journal to know how an idea will ramify through society. The traditional criterion in science has been, well, if it's new and if it's true, we should publish it and let society figure out how to how to take it on board. And, and I think that's broadly right. Of course, the larger point, Nico, is that because these terms are undefined, scientists like Anna Krylov publishing in this journal will need to self-censor. They'll need to second guess what it is that they'll be publishing. And they need not only to second guess what the editors of Nature Human Behavior will determine to be socially harmful or unjust, they'll also know that the editors of Human Behavior say that they will be consulting outside activists and groups to decide what's harmful. So now they have to deal with the possibility that some group or a number of groups and activists raise cane about an article and say, you shouldn't publish that. And it now gets rejected because of outside politics. Yeah, yeah. You say in your piece, when they demand the rejection or retraction of whatever research offends them, nature, human behavior, having committed to preventing, quote unquote, harm, will have nothing definite to fall back on. If the editors don't cave in right away, they will soon. I mean, I've, I've seen this played out on campuses across the country, right? Students cry harm, they cry oppression, and speakers get disinvited. Uh, you know, I don't think it's it's any different in the scientific con- context. Um, it's it's one of those it's one of those situations where you have the seen and the unseen. Uh, you you see the the science that gets published, but you don't see the science that doesn't make it through uh, this gauntlet. Professor Krylov, I want to I want to turn to you as a practicing scientist. Um, and just ask you how this process is supposed to work, or at least has historically worked. So when a scholar has an idea, what historically have you understood as you're going through your teaching needed to be done in order to get that, get that published? Well, it's a, it's a funny question in some sense, because as a practicing scientist, I never thought about actual uh, institutions that, uh, you know, their uh, philosophical justification. And it's only now when institutions appear to be broken, I am turning and reading uh, books like The Constitution of Knowledge by Jonathan Rausch, which explains um, how science op- can operate successfully and the importance of uh, certain ideas and concepts that uh, provide the basis of modern science. Uh, Merton, uh, uh, sociologist of science, uh, defined principles that uh, are beneficial to science enterprise as uh, uh, communalism, when scientists share their values, as uh, um, uh, objective scrutiny, and as uh, and so on. So, uh, if I want, if I have an idea, if I want to publish a paper. I cannot just put my idea you know, on Twitter and start collecting likes. I should prepare my idea following the standards of the institutions, provide sufficient um, justification for it, which comes from empirical evidence, from experiments, from computational experiments, from analysis of the data, then go through rigorous editorial uh, peer review process when uh, peers will assess my paper, will criticize it, 
and their reviews will be evaluated by an editor or editorial board. I'm serving as editor myself for two chemistry journals. And uh, through this process, it will be determined whether scientific, whether, you know, conclusions are justified by the data, whether data are collected in a robust way and so on. And that is a pretty high barrier for, for an idea to be published in a scientific journal. Yeah, you write about Merton in your piece, The Peril of Politicizing Science, and you kind of summarize what I think his philosophy is by saying, simply put, we should evaluate, reward, and acknowledge scientific contributions strictly on the basis of their intellectual merit and not on the basis of personal traits of the scientists or a current political agenda. But I think this is kind of where skeptical listeners are going to get hung up on, the idea of intellectual merit. What is intellectual merit? Um, how does it get defined? I mean, is is an idea that is it simply enough that the idea is true and the data support it, or even if it's true, like, and we can know the potential bad outcomes, is it it's still an intellectually meritorious idea worthy of publication? For example. Well, I think intellectual merit in a broad sense refers that idea uh, provides the, the idea and the proposition uh, when successfully through scrutiny and have merit of explaining a particular aspect of how the world uh, works. You know, it can explain some physical phenomena that what I do. I do not study people and populations. I study chemistry. And uh, uh, that's, yeah, so we do not, so the truth should be understood as uh, a provisional truth. It means that, you know, this proposition or uh, law, proposed law, uh, explains uh, uh, our current uh, set of data and can make testable predictions. And some of these testable predictions are tested by investigators that further confirm the idea and uh, and uh, that's it so uh, I so maybe I should yeah I wanted to add maybe early so when we talk about harms of science right so in my domain we do not deal with harms that uh, you and Jonathan just referred to like you know, some uh, direct harm to marginalized groups. Well, I mean, uh, uh, theoretically, uh, Professor Krylov, um, if I don't, if you don't mind, I mean, theoretically, you could. I mean, you're in chemistry, right? I think of Zyklon B. So yeah, that's, that's where I'm coming. I wanted to talk about. So sometimes I hear from uh, people and scientists that science has been complete. Science is responsible for many harms already. And people mention things like global warming. They say it's Science enabled it. People mention uh, nuclear weapons. They say science enabled it. People mention plastic pollution because chemistry invented plastics. Now we have this problem of plastic pollution in the oceans. And uh, I'm troubled by these statements because I think when people attribute these harms to science, uh, they make an important logical mistake because um, science. The knowledge does not cause any harm. It's how people use knowledge, 
how they use scientific findings. And that's responsibility of society, of stakeholders, of governments to uh, use scientific findings in a responsible and uh, uh, in beneficial for human for humans way. So it's not the fault of chemistry or plastic researchers that uh, uh, we do not have good recycling uh, plastic recycling uh, programs and that some people just throw away their used uh, plastic cups uh, into the open. So yeah, I mean it would it, they're essentially asking uh, scientists and reviewers to predict the future, all the possible ways in which any given technology or any given research could be used. I mean, like, as I was mentioning, Zyklon B, it's a pesticide, um, but it, 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 it was used eventually in chemical warfare and to, of course, in the gas chambers and the concentration camps, um, during the Holocaust. Um, you know, you have, uh, and then you have people like, uh, which is you, you cite Fritz Haber, who's both the father of modern chemical warfare and the man who developed whose development of nitrogen fixation is, you know, feeding the planet and allowing, I think it's probably no, um, stretch to say the reason many of us are alive, uh, today. I, I want to, I want to go back to a point that you were making and maybe pitch this over to Jonathan in the, editorial from nature human behavior they say science has for too long been complicit in perpetuating structural inequalities and discrimination in society is that putting too much i mean jonathan you also talk about the ways in which science has resulted in findings that are used to harm if we're adopting nature human behaviors term certain groups but it also assumes that science isn't a process that like it, you arrive at a conclusion. Um, cause a lot of those, I mean, you talk in your piece as, as a gay man yourself about how science was used to justify, um, the marginalization and oppression of, of gay men and women in America. Um, but it was also science that reversed those prejudices. So, I mean, how do you think of that contention that science has for too long been complicit in perpetuating structural inequalities? I say that there is a sense in which the statement that science has participated in marginalizing or oppressing groups or individuals, there's a sense in which that's trivially and obviously true, which is simply that science is embedded in society. And if it's made up of entirely, say, I don't know, anti-gay white males, that will be reflected in the work. Um, that's true of all social institutions. But let's talk about what's different about science from any other system of creating knowledge and organizing the process of finding truth. It's strongly incentivized to correct its own mistakes. Anna Krylov could get very famous tomorrow if she could, I don't know, prove cold fusion, which a lot of people think is impossible. If she can disprove a standard hypothesis and substitute a better one. Most knowledge-making systems, including the politicized ones, which start out by saying, okay, here's the truth. Now we're going to prove the truth and you can't deviate. They either correct their errors over centuries or not at all. Science does it in 
usually years. In the case of gay people, it was 17 years, I think. Let's see, 1957 to 1973. What's that? I guess that's 16 years to correct that mistake from the time it was uncovered to the time that psychiatry changed the the manual so that gay people were no longer seen as, as mentally ill. That's a revolution in social justice. It took people like me until I was age 13. I was mentally ill. It has all kinds of devastating impacts on our employment, our standing in society, on our self-image. It was the work of a psychologist, Evelyn Hooker, doing scientific research who discovered that centuries of discrimination were completely unfounded. And 16 years later, that was reversed. So I think the editors of Nature Human Behavior have it wrong. Uh, Yes, there's prejudice and bigotry in science and scientists as in all institutions. The answer is more and better science. I agree with that. That's absolutely, I mean, this example is extremely powerful, I think. But I also want to uh, maybe say uh, something in defense of individuals. So it's absolutely correct that people reflect their own societies and times in which they live and operate. And their beliefs are shaped by the prevailing ideas in the society. But at the same time, we should acknowledge that within scientific community, there were many, many people who were ahead of their times. And now they are good deeds, and they contributed to the social progress just because they you know, were able to see beyond the, their immediate environment. And uh, I, I care a lot about the progress with women in science and women in the society. And I read many biographies of uh, famous scientists like Maria Curie, Skladowska Curie, Liz Meitner, Maria Gopert Meyer. So they lived in 19th, early 20th century. And uh, these uh, biographies are full of this, you know, heart. Uh, breaking details about what they had to endure to be able to do science and how society was not uh, accommodating them. Like Maria Curie had to work as a governess to raise some money for to be able to go to France where women were admitted to university because they weren't admitted at universities in Poland. So at the, st- at the same time, there were enough male colleagues, mentors, who supported these women, who advocated for them, who uh, uh, promoted their research, encouraged them, and collectively they did contribute to change of the opinion around it. So scientists, not all scientists were bigots, even those scientists that had some conservative views. I certainly didn't mean to imply that, that most scientists are bigots. Far from it. Two things are true. The first is what you just said. Scientists have been at the forefront of advancing moral progress again and again. Uh, the greatest of the Soviet dissidents, Andrei Sakharov, was a physicist. The greatest of American gay rights advocates, Frank Kameny, was a PhD Harvard-trained astronomer. Then um, the second thing is also true, which is that, that throughout history, the single most important force in advancing the rights of minorities and ending ignorance and oppression has been the advance of knowledge and well ahead of whatever is number two. And the notion that a group of bureaucrats editing a publication can somehow bestride that process, look down on the universe, and figure out what's the next piece of research that will advance um, moral inquiry or minority rights is ludicrous. People have tried this for centuries. The Catholic Church tried it in the time of Galileo. Um, 
federal government's doing it right now with uh, the way it tries to repress research into, for example, uh, health health harms of, of guns, health benefits of cannabis. And again and again and again, people who set themselves up as the arbiters of the direction of science and knowledge fail. All they do is interpose their own prejudices and their own political uh, viewpoints between the scholars doing the work and the audiences that need to evaluate the work. I am really like amazed by the arrogance which which they do that. And you said it very well in the uh, ending piece of the article, like kind of calling this editor that think themselves as the world saviors that understand, you know, and can predict all the harms and uh, in the future. And unfortunately, this is uh, uh, this phenomenon is uh, very widespread, and we have a lot of interference with the science and this nature. Uh, a human behavior article is just one example of that. The article that uh, uh, caught my attention uh, was a paper from Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, and it wasn't an editorial written by, edit- by a few editors, but a science paper where they argue for the urgent need to institute ethics research boards for scientific funding. So they want to use uh, ideas of possible harms of science uh, to uh, to be a prerequisite of uh, scientific funding. So basically what they want to do, they want to quench particular type of research before it even starts. So I think it's even worse than um, uh, trying to prevent research from being published. Nico, I know you're trying to get a word in edgewise, but we're marginalizing you. Uh, another example of this at Princeton University in 2020, after the uh, the Floyd riots, a whole bunch of faculty, Nico, I think it was a couple hundred, right, signed a letter making a series of demands. And one of those demands was that Princeton should appoint an anti-racism committee that would preemptively judge all of the scholarship being done by Princeton scholars in order to make sure that it was properly anti-racist. It's academic justice there, Jonathan. You know, it's what the student in 2014 at Harvard was advocating for. It's a politicization uh, or an insertion of ideology into the scientific process. And Professor Krylov, I want to ask you about that because as our listeners might hear from your accent, you were born in the Soviet Union, right? Um, You have uh, some experience with ideology uh, being inserted into the scientific process. And that's the first half of your piece, The Peril of Politicizing Science. You talk about how the Soviet Union was hamstrung um, in its scientific development because it it saw, for example, quantum mechanics and general relativity as bourgeois pseudoscience, for example. And it was only when it was struck with the reality and the competition from the West that Stalin kind of backed off on that and allowed, for example, nuclear research scene that they weren't going to be able to develop a nuclear weapon uh, without putting that aside. Yeah, the parallels are quite uh, uh, obvious, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I was criticized for making these comparisons, but I think they are justified. So the kind of important parallel between Soviet times and what we see now is that ideology was taking precedence over all other aspects of the society and scientific enterprise. 
and it was justified. You know, we weren't leaving and going around doing what we are supposed to do. We all were serving. We are supposed to serve the big goal, big aim, which in our time was promoting a world revolution, and we were supposed to do everything through the lens of uh, how what we do advances goal of a proletariat dominance. So, and each and research topics were always scrutinized by committees of um, uh, commissars of uh, people appointed by the party to see whether they aligned with ideas of Marxism-Leninism and uh, how did they do it? Well, in the same way as, you know, like you cannot define harm, it's not really easy to define how some chemistry ideas are aligned with Marxism-Leninism. So some decisions were pretty random and hard to explain. I failed to explain, for example, why the theory of resonance or why quantum mechanics were considered to be not aligned with Marxism-Leninism. But, uh, you know, if you scrutinize Russian literature, you will see that, uh, you know, for some time, uh, cybernetics, computer research was considered to be bourgeois and Western and was suppressed. Then you see when, you know, the restrictions were slightly lifted, many scientists were writing papers explaining in great detail why cybernetics is not uh, antagonistic to Marxism-Leninism and therefore should constitute a legitimate field of research and so on. Now, in some cases, uh, uh, so yeah, the example you mentioned, nuclear weapons, that's, I think, an exception rather than proof. It's the only one documented example when uh, uh, Soviet regime backed off uh, this um, uh, practice of regulating science. And in this case, Stalin and Beria were talking to Kapitza, who told them that a prominent physicist and Beria asked him, you know, what's up with this uh, relativity? Is it really? Uh, so what do you think about it? He say, I do not, I wouldn't say what it means in terms of Marxism-Leninism, but without it, there will be no nuclear bomb. And that was sufficient at this time to let physicists be for a while. But uh, it didn't, uh, uh, in, in other cases, such as biology, such as Lysenkovism and uh, genetics being declared uh, metaphysical and bourgeois science, the research was suppressed for a couple of decades, and that had devastating consequences in Soviet Union and also uh, beyond in China, where these ideas were, a lot of a lot of people starved as a result. Uh, many millions, yeah. So that's well. You, you know, we've been talking in this conversation about research that gets proposed to journals or goes through the sci- academic scientific process. But um, Professor Krylov, in your article, "The Peril of Politicizing Science," you talk about other phenomena in science, which seems which is an attempt to kind of almost purify science around ideology. Now you start your article by talking about the city that you grew up in. And I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Huzvaka, Huzavka, which underwent three name changes during your lifetime um, in almost subservience of uh, different ideologies. Uh, it became 
then use you know it, it so it was originally named after a welsh industrialist named john hughes um and then when the bolsheviks came to power in the 1917 uh, revolution the new government of the working class the soviets set out to purge uh cities of their uh, impure western influence so it got renamed after that um and then in 1924, the city became the namesake of the new supreme leader of the Communist Party, Stalin, um, then was renamed Stalino. Um, and then what's it called today, Professor? Donetsk. Donetsk. Is that the same Donetsk in eastern Ukraine? Yes, that's the place. Underwent three name changes. But you're saying this sort of thing's happening in science, too. Um, and that's what really interests me. You talk about how, I'm just trying to find it here in my notes, there's a comment in Nature, the journal, for example, that calls for replacing the accepted technical term quantum supremacy with quantum advantage. I guess the idea being that supremacy is associated with... Yeah, with white supremacy, but it's already outdated. I was at a recent conference, and advantage now, I think, also considered to be not fully politically correct, and people using quantum benefit as less ableism, I think. <laughs> so. Well, this is it's the thing, it's right. And then you, you, you cite an example here, um, a Dove Soap. You cite an article, maker of Dove Soap will drop the word normal from beauty products. Unilever, which owns brands like Dove, said a study f had found that the word normal makes most people like, feel excluded. And a spokesperson said it would remove the word from 200, uh, two, 200 products. And then, but I mean, more, more on point, you talk about there, how there's a movement in science uh, to stop attaching names to scientific concepts and discoveries. For example, Archimedes' principle, Newton's laws of motion is being renamed as what the three laws of three important laws of nature or something like yeah that. removing newton from it um the authors and i'm quoting you here call for vigilance and naming discoveries and assert that basing the name with inclusive priorities may provide a path to a richer deeper and more robust understanding of the science and its advancement i don't know that I, I don't know. I learned about Newton's laws of motion. I don't know that I'll have a better understanding of what you're talking about if you just refer to generally some laws of motion. Um, so it, it seems, and it seems like you know we're we're trying to purify the science and sniff out bias, discrimination, where uh, where it doesn't exist because where our antennae are attuned to find it in. The darkest crevices. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, uh, I mean, you mentioned this too. Uh, to, these are two separate things. One is the war on language that we see is, you know, developing. And yeah, the word normal. I was criticized for suggesting that if things continue to go the way they are, we will not be allowed to say normal pH or normal distribution. People say, oh, no, no, that's an exaggeration. It will never happen. But guess what? It does happen. Recently, there was an article in, I think, Scientific American where the author complained about normal distribution and was saying that it's really discriminatory and alienating. And I mean, it, it gets crazy, Professor. 
um, and I guess I, I probably can't say crazy either, but it gets it gets abs- it gets absurd. We had a case where a building was named after a benefactor who had no history of anything that one might suspect today uh, would get you in trouble. But the benefactor's last name happened to be Lynch. And so you can imagine what the outcry was there. Um, it's like it's, it's, we're just erasing nuance. We're just erasing. It's like we're throwing common sense out the window in service of a broader ideology. And it's, it's going to hurt the sciences. And it's going to just hurt. It's more than that. Like, okay, so we can talk about laws and equations. That's one line. And another one, buildings and awards and that sort of thing. Now, uh, uh, why some people say, oh, it's just silly. You know, why do you care? You know, we will rename a building with a more inclusive name. It's not even related to scientific contributions like in case of Newton. So, and my concern with that is that, first of all, it's really silly. And if you think about possible impact of building renamings, for example, like Caltech recently renamed building library named after Milica, a famous physicist who was first to determine a charge of electron. I know that you know this experiment is described in high school physics books. And he also contributed a lot for uh, shaping Caltech into what it is now. He was for many years serving as president. So his name was renamed, removed from the building for his uh, uh, association with organizations that uh, was eugenic, which at the time was very widespread belief. So uh, what, how this process uh, uh, proceeded. So the Caltech established a giant committee with historians, and that entails already some uh, money that could be spent better. For example, I do not know how much Caltech renaming campaign cost, but another example from Iowa, where they want to rename a building uh, named after a famous suffragist, uh, cut because she said something inappropriate by today's standards. So university paid $35,000 for a consultant firm to firm who is supposed to evaluate, you know, all evidence and come up with recommendations. So there is a lot of resources of money and people spent on this. At the same time, you know, it's really meaningless activity. If you think about people you know, I talk to people, to students, to colleagues, to some famous colleagues, and you hear stories about how, you know, it's their life, uh, there were events and people that made changes in their career and, you know, helped them to develop their potential. You hear stories about mentors, supportive spouses, parents, inspiring teachers, uh, books, that piqued their interest and motivated. Can you imagine, like, you know, 20 years later, we hear from some successful scientist, yeah, I didn't know what to do with my life, but then I heard that Caltech renamed the name, the building and removed the name of Millikan from it. Yeah, that's what really inspired me and, you know, made a big change in my career. So this is really, I think, uh, shamelessly useless kind of, waste of human resources and money and uh, yeah so that's one reason i am jonathan i'm I'm curious kind of what you think of the canceling of scientists so to speak yeah 
Professor Krylov also talks about how some of these arguments could be extended to Heisenberg, who led Germany's nuclear weapons program, Schrodinger, who had romantic relationships with... They already took Schrodinger down in uh, Dublin. So I wrote it before, and I didn't mean it as a recommendation. But <laughs> <laughs> you need to be more careful, Professor Krylov. <laughs> but it, but it seems like it seems like I mean it's a separate argument sort of from whether the arguments can get into the academic discussion in the first place to whether from whether we like purify or kind of remove unsavory figures from names of scientific principles from from the past. One seems to be just an exercise more in making. So it, it, there just seems to be a little bit of a difference. One is more inhibiting of the scientific process. Another is perhaps obnoxious, but not as inhibiting. Or maybe, I, maybe I'm missing something. I mean, how do you see oh, it? I, I don't actually particularly worry about building renamings. They may waste a little money and time and energy, but you know, if a new generation comes along and wants to state its priorities differently, that's what building names and statues are for. So have at it. Uh, Yale College renamed Calhoun College. John C. Calhoun was was an advocate of slavery. I have no problem with that. So I would distinguish that kind of ordinary political tussling um, from actively sticking a thumb on the scales of scientific research, which is what is happening in nature, human behavior. It's what right wing, what conservatives are doing in state legislatures on issues like uh, critical race theory. Uh, it's what's happened down through history, not just the USSR and certain quarters in America, but but everywhere where you've seen scientific progress, you've seen political actors attempting to contain, suppress, or direct scientific activity. And, and that's what we're seeing again. Um, I would have a question if, if there's time for Professor Krylov, which is, is, is that all right, Nico, or are we running short? So you're a, you're a bench scientist, right? Uh, you you do the research. These computers, not these real chemicals. Well, uh, what if I'm going to steel man the the argument for a second for nature human behavior and say, look, let's be realistic. How does it actually affect your day to day work, knowing that? You know, some editors of a journal are going to look at potential harm and evaluate that as one of many criteria they use. Aren't you exaggerating? I do not. So uh, it affects my everyday life in many different ways, right? So now the main effect that we see with this idea is that some people' names can be harmful or some uh, uh, question raising some questions can be harmful. It affects. Uh, Mostly scientific enterprise, like how we hire students, how we hire, how we award achievements, how we reward achievements, how we uh, give out uh, research funding. So this is uh, this is what affects my everyday life life the most. Uh, for example, in uh, funding applications, some agencies now require to specify how particular research will promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. So if you cannot justify, you cannot, you know, you, you will be uh, dismissed. Uh, so that's a very big, um, you know, money is very important for carrying out research in physical sciences, even computational research. So these restrictions are very real. Um, 
But uh, Jonathan, what uh, worries me more is that this uh, uh, ideological control of science is expanding very rapidly. And for example, in this uh, paper that I mentioned from uh, Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, they talk not about social science research. They talk about research such as chemistry. They talk about research that computational chemistry can be um, uh, subjected to these uh, new requirements to evaluate potential harms. So let me just read a couple of suggestions of this uh, proposed in this paper. They say that uh, any harms to the society can be, you know, used to restrict funding for science. And they explicitly say potential harms to any population that could arise following from the research. For example, job loss due to automation. So any research that I do, let's say we develop a better uh, energy uh, solution. So surely it will loss, uh, lead to loss of jobs in some sectors, maybe in coal industry or in oil industry. So does it mean that we should stop research uh, for new energy sources because it will result in job loss in some population? So, uh, and you know, like uh, I, I, examples of this type are uh, uh, growing. So my concern is that if we do not do anything against this intrusion of the ideology, in a five year, it will uh, present much, in five years, it will present much bigger challenges for STEM and will affect our everyday lives even more than it does now. There's the there's a kind of politicization of the research as it happens, um, but there's also the kind of pre-screening process that prevents anyone from getting into ac the academy unless they are uh, conversant in the ideology. And you're seeing that particularly in the state of California um, with the DEI requirements, the diversity, equity, and inclusion requirements uh, in order to get hired in the first place or promoted, right? You not only need, you, for example, can't just be a great chemist. You also need to articulate how your chemistry um, supports diversity, equity, and in inclusion. They seem to be separate things for me, but it, this is, and this is my personal opinion, the increased fixation and maybe it's not increased. This has always existed throughout society on, on the person and potentially their ideology and their politics as not being distinct from what other values they might contribute. Well, that's a violation of Mitronian principle of universalism, which says that the identity of scientists doesn't matter. It's, you know, what, what they doesn't affect the validity of their findings or intellectual merit of their findings. And now this is again thrown out of the window, and now we are told that no identity of the future professors and educators should be part of the evaluation of their merit. Yeah, you give a great example in your piece. In 1911, Marie Curie was ostracized for immoral behavior in an affair with a married man following the tragic death of her husband, Pierre Curie. The chair of the Nobel Prize Committee wrote to her advising that she not attend the official ceremony for her Nobel Prize in chemistry in view of her questionable moral standing. Curie replied that she would be present at the ceremony because, quote, the prize has been given to her for her discovery of polonium and radium 
and that there is no relation between her scientific work and the facts of her private life. So, I mean, this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon. You, you see this in current science, right? Like um, James Watson, uh, a scientist who uh, won the Nobel Prize for uh, uh, work related to nucleic acid and identifying the double helix. And, and he also has ideas about IQ and their relation to um, racial groups that have essentially cut him out from the academy, uh, regardless of whether his work that he was performing in his laboratory is, is related to race and IQ. It's not um, because of his opinion on a separate issue. Um, and you have to wonder if there's there's something to be lost by not uh, sticking to that that Mertonian principle. Well, dis- discourse is harm. There's a prominent recent example, which I know, Nico, I know both of you know about, which is uh, a man named Dorian Abbott, who's an exoplanetary biologist, was uh, uh, invited to give a scientific lecture at MIT. But when people there discovered that he had written an opinion piece in Newsweek arguing that um, college admissions should be race blind and based only on merit, uh, he was deplatformed. He was disinvited because people said that's that's a, that opinion is beyond the pale. Now, what's unusual is he was not being invited to MIT to talk about race blind admissions. He was going to talk about exoplanetary biology. So what you see there is exactly the same kind of phenomenon that we've seen down through the ages, which is the attempt to um, to suppress science uh, as a as a test of character. One more thing I'd just add to the to conversation, Nico, is that you know I think science scientists should have open minded attitudes and not bring politics to their work. But I understand that scientists are only human. And some of them will bring politics to their work. Some of them will make bad judgments or wrong decisions. The point, though, is that there are a lot of them. And if we have a sufficiently diverse intellectual climate, they will make different decisions. And in the long run and the medium run, actually the fairly short run, we'll be able to evaluate those decisions in in public debate. What gets scarier is when you bureaucratize scientific decision-making. So now you have separate people in the diversity, equity, and inclusion office who are setting the rules about who gets hired or who gets tenured. They have to meet certain standards. Those standards become ideological. Or you have a handful of editors at Nature Human Behavior who appoint themselves the decision makers in what's going to be the direction of scientific research rather than leaving it to a much broader and more diverse community. Once you have bureaucracies that are making these decisions and requiring the scientific communities submit in order to get funding or in order to get publication, tenure, avoid investigation, then you're in a world that's much closer to the world where Anna Krylov grew up. Well, I, you, you did say as a caveat there where you have sufficient uh, ideological diversity, right? And, and part of the effort, I believe, with these DAI initiatives is to take a situation, for example, and we can talk about the social sciences here where this might matter more, where in some New England colleges, you have one conservative for every 40 liberals on campus, you, you get this kind of groupthink mentality and you remove the institutional disconfirmation that comes from the academic process where biases check biases. Um, and you just, you know, I, I just don't see how this 
create anything more than a politically and ideologically homogenous community by implementing these DEI requirements for hiring and tenure. Um, and as a result, science and, and scholarship will suffer because you will not have anyone checking those biases because every, everyone thinks the same. Yeah, the monoculture, the rise of monoculture on campuses is most immediate, uh, you know, consequence of this. But, you know, I am, as a physical scientist, I kind of like to look at uh, concrete uh, reasons, uh, concrete dangers. And, uh, you know, as, as we were taught in Russia by, you know, studying works of Karl Marx, you should look at where, you know, who has a vested interest in this. And what worries me a lot uh, is that uh, these uh, bureaucracies, DI bureaucracies, it's a big, there is a big money behind it. And these activities, they create a sinecures for, for many, many people. To give you an idea how large these budgets are, uh, the uh, annual budget for last year for diversity, equity, and inclusion at UC Berkeley is $41 million. And most of it is going for administrator. And some of them have very large salaries, like six-digit salaries. So that creates a huge conflict of interest. And if you think about it, if you have this bureaucracy with all these uh, big uh, uh, incomes, and uh, let's say that generally, uh, let's ask a question. Let's say if we really have diversity problem on campus, and here we created this bureaucracy, highly paid bureaucrats, do they have an interest to improve the situation? Because if we solve diversity problem, these jobs will become irrelevant. Yeah, they will lose their income. So I think this monetary uh, uh, interest is really makes these bureaucracies much more toxic and much more dangerous in the long run for our institutions because they will not, I cannot expect them to operate in a good faith and I cannot expect them to, uh, to, to be dedicated to the title cost of their existence. So that's what worries me. Uh, something I point out in, in my article is there's been a crisis of confidence in academia, uh, public belief that universities are good for the country has fallen by 10 percentage points in just the past five years. And by polling standards, that's a catastrophic drop. Um, a lot of that is because the public now thinks that, that people in academia are all left wing and all pursuing a political agenda. I don't think that's true. I think there are huge reserves of professionalism and integrity and brilliance in academia, but everything about the nature-human behavior approach to this problem of creating a screen of saying, we're setting standards for social harm and social justice. They're going to involve groups, not individuals. They're going to involve uh, equity over privilege. All of this further communicates to the public, you know what? Science is not on the level. Science is left-wing. And that's bad for science. It's bad for universities, um, and it's going to heighten the, the crisis of credibility that, that higher education is experiencing. There is actually research on that by some by Professor Cahan from uh, Harvard, I think, and what he shown that public trust or mistrust in science uh, correlates with how they perceive 
the extent of politization of science and when public perceives and not with the level of education. So basically, people can be vaccine deniers, not because they are uneducated, but because they see this issue to be politicized and they see that scientists act increasingly more like uh, social justice warriors rather or, you know, political uh, entities rather than uh, unbiased and uh, uh, unbiased researchers. And that's a big harm for the society, this mistrust into science and its findings. Yeah, I mean, that's that applies across institutions, right? The the less trust there is in an institution, the less trustful of the outcome. From the, You see this in the courts, right? If you lose trust in the courts, you are going to lose trust or you're going to be less willing to accept the outcome of whatever a judge or a jury decides. Um, it's why it's so important to keep the process fair. To Jonathan's point, of, uh, to put the statistics out there, according to Pew Research Center, from 2015 to 2019, the share of Americans saying colleges and universities have a, quote, negative effect on the country rose from 28% to 38%, a 10% increase in the view that colleges and universities have a negative effect. And that I'd like to see the numbers today. But I do want to ask as a closing question here, because we are running out of time, or maybe already out of time. Um, will science win in the long run you know you look for example at that example we talk about in the soviet union professor krylov about how they tried to ideologize uh nuclear physics uh but were eventually faced with the reality of how um detrimental that was to progress will we see that in this context as well if ideology does overtake science will in the end um the people come to respect the scientific method and process and those Mertonian principles you discussed early on? Well, that's what many people are trying to communicate to public and to politicians, that we do not have this luxury just to engage in this politicization of science. We face urgent issues. We have to deal with the climate problem, with energy problem, with pandemics. We have to deal, we also should remember that we operate in a global uh, seen and if uh, and uh, if we undermine our scientific and technological standing, which already happened, we already lost our uh, leadership uh, to China in many domains, and it's documented by recent uh, technology indicators. So it it is a serious problem. Now, unfortunately, uh, people who promote identity-based ideology, they um, uh, seem to be uh, oblivious to that, and their argument is that uh, diversity is the answer for everything, and by increasing diversity, <laughs> we somehow miraculously will improve science. And uh, and I think this claims kind of uh, confuse some people, and I think not everyone understands the dangers of subjugating the scientific process to this ideological um, ideological controls. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. We're just eclipsing an hour. Um, Professor Anna Krylov, Jonathan Rausch, I thank you both for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Honored to be here. Again, for those who are interested in checking it out, and I'll have uh, their two articles linked in the show notes here, Jonathan's 
article is Nature, Human Misbehavior, Politicized Science is Neither Science Nor Progress, and that can be found at thefire.org on FIRE's website. And then, of course, uh, Professor Anna Krylov's article, The Peril of Politicizing Science, which can be found in the Journal of Physical Chemistry. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Chris Maltby. You can learn more about So To Speak by subscribing to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. And we, of course, always take email feedback. I hear from you all quite frequently, and I always like going back and forth with you all. Our email address is so to speak at the fire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. They help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. <laughs>